right. How are we? Good? All right, good. Good to see you guys. I always feel like that bumper video is a little bit of a downer, and then I have to come in here and try to get the energy back up. I'm like, is everybody sad now? Okay, let's do this. Um, hey, let me just say this. I know some of you are new here. There's a lot of you I have never seen before, which I'm really glad that you guys are here. But if you are new, hey, I do want to tell you about an opportunity in terms of getting connected here at the summit. A lot of times it's hard. You know, you come in, and the room's a little bit crowded, and it's like, how, how can I get to know people and be known by people? And really the best next step for us as a church is called the Summit Class, and it's happening tonight after the gathering, okay? It's going to be about 45 minutes right after. We'll provide dinner. If you brought kids, we'll watch your kids for you uh, as well. And we would love to have you stay and just learn about, like, what does it mean to really belong here at the summit? We're really big about moving you from spectator to participant and really belonging here and having you feel like kind of this is a home for you. And so uh, if you are desirous of doing that, I hope you are. I know you have a million good reasons and a million other things you need to get to because it's Sunday night and, you know, work is tomorrow, all that sort of stuff. But you got to eat dinner. We'd love to have you eat it with us for free. We'll provide it. You won't have to cook. You won't have to clean. And you get to hang out with us. So I feel like all of that is like win, 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 win. Whatever, a lot of wins in there. So please stay. And instead of going left after we get done, instead go right. Okay, uh, we're going to get started. Um, I wanted to start with uh, my, my wife, uh, Megan, and I, um, a couple weeks ago, we were watching a movie. And uh, it wasn't a particularly good movie. Uh, I'm a little bit embarrassed to share that I watched this movie. Um, but it sort of serves my point. It's the movie San Andreas. Has anybody seen that movie, San Andreas? Um, yeah, apparently you are much more cultured than the AM because, like, nobody had seen it in the morning, okay? So I guess you guys have seen it. In case you haven't seen it, it's basically this giant earthquake hits California, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson beats the earthquake, okay? That's basically the, the, what happens in the story. Comes, saves the day. And as I was watching this film, I wasn't really excited to watch it, but my wife loves movies like this. She's in Summit Kids, so I can talk a little bit more bluntly than I did uh, earlier. So it's like she loves movies like this. I don't really get it. Um, but maybe as I was thinking about this, I'm like, how do I redeem this time? And there were a couple important observations I wanted to make about watching this film. Uh, the first is, has anybody seen this picture uh, from, of The Rock in the 80s? Um, I don't know if you've seen this picture or not. But, you know, in this series, we're talking about how God is alive and changing lives. And I just think to myself, like, if that dude can become an A-list Hollywood movie star, man, you can do anything, right? Like, you can do anything. You can be anybody. You should just, like, be really, you should just take confidence and hope. That's not even the point of what we're talking about this, uh, this evening, but I just, just felt, like, felt like I needed to, uh, to say that. Secondly, so I'm watching this, watching this film and um, I, I'm kind of like, I, I don't know. I, I'm like one of those people when I'm watching something I don't really like to watch. I'm making sarcastic comments the entire time about how stupid this is. All, and my wife is getting very frustrated with me. And then if you've ever seen this film, you know that like maybe a third of the way through, there's this guy who kind of reveals, him, reveals himself to be a bad guy. He's kind of a jerk. And he's this girl's stepdad. And he leaves his stepdaughter like in the car for her to die because he's trying to save himself. And he like throws children out into the streets of San Francisco to save his own life. And it's amazing to me. I'm like watching this movie. And all of a sudden I go from sort of like, like cynical, passive, like comment maker to like really invested in what happens in this movie. And particularly what really happens to this guy. Like I find myself really, really outraged about this guy. Like he's such a jerk. And I'm hoping to myself that like justice will rain down from the heavens upon this guy. And when it happens, it's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but when it happens and this dude is like trying to get across uh, the Golden Gate Bridge to save his life and this tidal wave splats him on the Golden Gate Bridge, it like takes everything within me not to cheer out yes, because that'd be like a sick thing to cheer out in front of my wife while watching a film. You know, now I'm confessing it here, but you know, it's just like, man, it's like a 
amazing to me how in that moment I went from just sort of like passive spectator to like really, really caring and being outraged. And I don't know, like what I thought to myself as I was watching this, is it's amazing to us the degree to which we feel the weight of injustice, even in moments that are like fictitious and insignificant. I don't know, I was just thinking about that, right? It's like a lot of you felt this as well, where there's even like movies you can't watch. It's not even real life, but you just came and watching it. It's like, I just care too much, and it's so unfair, and it's so sad what happens to those people. And, and you take that feeling about sort of a fictional story, and, and it only escalates if you watch something that happened in real life. Like I was watching a documentary uh, a couple of weeks ago about a guy who was sort of seeking re-election for something and he was able to sort of like uh, invent these charges against these guys that they didn't do, but he knew if he prosecuted them, even though they didn't commit the crime, then it would sort of like boost his poll numbers and stuff. It was just crazy, crazy unjust. And I just felt myself like really upset, like even struggling to sleep that night because I was thinking about like how prevalent that could potentially be. And man, it's like it only escalates as you look not only like real life, but then when it becomes like personal for you, all of us in this room in one way or another have felt the weight of injustice in one way. Maybe it's the way you've treated. Maybe it's something, even just kind of like in the grand scheme of things, insignificant, but man, it really upsets you. I mean, it's even just like you got pulled over by the cops for speeding, but it was actually the car in front of you going 10 miles per hour over. You were going like three. I mean, you're not just like, well, officer, mistakes happen. You know, you're like, man, this is wrong. How do I fight this? I mean, I'll just even be vulnerable from the front end of my own life. Like for me, um, you know, my family has become increasingly racially diverse with each member that's been added. So my wife uh, is not white, and then we added a daughter that we adopted who's Asian. It's been amazing for me, just my eyes being open to the degree of the prevalence of uh, the racial stereotyping, uh, just racism in general. And, you know, it used to be kind of a problem that was out there, but now I feel it within my own nuclear family now as well. And man, it's just, I don't know. Like, I was just thinking about this this past week because it's amazing. We exist in this culture where kind of everybody says, man, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. And there's no such thing as absolute truth. And everybody's kind of left to their own opinion and don't really impose the way somebody should live upon other people. And that sounds all good and fine until you come face-to-face with real authentic injustice that impacts you or somebody you love. And you stop being a passive spectator, and you get involved, and you get really, really upset and outraged. And it's, it's unavoidable, that, that feeling of outrage in the face of injustice. It's universal in nature, no matter what you might believe about God. Now, I say all of this kind of anticipation of this text for a couple of reasons. The first is, it's important for you to understand, particularly if you're here and you're trying to figure out maybe what you believe about God, it's important for you to understand the reason that we universally feel outrage, even though culture tells you you shouldn't feel outrage, the reason you clamor for justice, even though culture sort of tells you that life is unfair, is because you were created in the image of an un- uh, you were created in the image of a just God. I almost committed heresy. Okay, the opposite of what I just said. <laughs> you were created in the image of a just God. Okay, that's the reason. Why? Now, secondly, it's important for you to understand your desire then for justice to be served is not some sort of fanciful wish dream that kind of like only exists in Disney movies, but no, actually is something that God has promised is going to deliver upon. And, the, and what we're going to see in this text is that the resurrection, that's what we've been talking about in this series, the resurrection, this invitation into a relationship with the living God, how the resurrection is sort of God's glimpse, his down payment, his promise that the day that we universally long for is going to happen. That's what we're going to see. And sort of Acts 12 is sort of a, a little bit of a ripple effect of the day that is about to come, all right? So that's what we're going to look at. I'm super pumped to uh, look at this text 
And uh, we're going to walk through it, okay? It's one of my favorite stories in the entirety of the Bible. Um, we'll have the text on the screen as well. But uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, that's even better. So uh, first, here's what we're going to see. We're just going to give you a little bit of the context of the story and the historical background of what's going on here. I know it may seem like just a bunch of, like, I don't know, it might seem like history class, but it really matters, and we'll kind of explain why in a moment, okay? Now look at verse 1. Uh, about that time, now uh, we actually know from external historical uh, sources that this probably took place around 42 or 43 AD. We're not sure which, but you can pinpoint it uh, to right there. Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, let's dive into the history of what's going on here. This guy, Herod, there's a lot of Herods in the Bible. It's easy to get them mixed up. This guy is the grandson of a guy named Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, you might know him because he was the Herod who, at the birth of Jesus, killed as many babies as he could in the attempt to kill baby Jesus as well and keep him from growing up and becoming a king. So super jacked up, wicked dude. Now, uh, Herod's grandson, this Herod, uh, was not exactly a sweetheart either. The apple did not fall far from the tree. And what happened? is the Roman emperor, a guy named Caligula, placed this Herod over a portion of the Roman Empire that was predominantly Jewish. Now, uh, as you can imagine, people don't like exactly being ruled by other people, and so the Jewish people had sort of tense relationship, a tense relationship with the Roman authorities. And so Herod here is always sort of trying to protect his poll numbers, protect his political relationships, kind of keep his job as easy as possible. And Herod realizes something. If I can keep the Jewish people happy, my job is much happier as well. Now, it's interesting. I mentioned earlier I watched this documentary um, a couple of weeks ago, but it was the story of this guy who was running for re-election. He prosecuted three guys for a crime that they didn't commit um, just because basically he understood that sort of the crime they were accused of was sort of a hot-button issue amongst his constituents, and if he prosecuted them anyways and looked like he was kind of hard on this particular issue, it would increase his chances of being re-elected. Super, just crazy, unjust. That is essentially what Herod is doing here, uh, but he's taking it a step further. Uh, one, he's killing people. He, he kills James. He throws Peter into prison immediately. Boom, two of the 12 disciples are just out of it, um, and he just... Boom, just does that, and they can't do anything about it. Like, the church is left with nothing uh, to do other than to pray. Now, in case, even as you hear all this, you're thinking to yourself, well, man, like, at least he just threw Peter in prison. That's not that bad. Well, he was about to kill Peter. In fact, there's a little footnote right after this that sort of anticipates why he hasn't killed Peter yet. It says, all of this was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, this was a major holiday in the Jewish calendar. And just kind of like in our culture, it would be a bummer to murder somebody on the 4th of July or Christmas, right? You like murder people on the 5th of July or like December 26th. That's basically what's going on here, okay? He's like imprisoning Peter. He's like, okay, it's going to be a bummer to kind of kill you during this feast, but it'll make the Jewish people much happier if we kill you after the feast is over and kind of nobody feels guilty uh, about it. So he throws him in prison, verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of, full, uh, of soldiers to guard him. That would have been 16 soldiers. So he's definitely on lockdown, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The reason we're going into all this detail is I want you to feel the weight of this injustice, okay? You imagine this is your friend, this is your pastor, like, this church was founded by these guys, loved by these guys, known by these guys, and then boom, like just because of one attempt to boost poll numbers, a politician kills one of their leaders and imprisons another one of their leaders and get, is getting ready to execute them tomorrow. I would assume you would be upset. I hope you would be upset. 
If you weren't upset, don't tell me because then I'll be upset. That would make me really sad if that happened to me and you didn't care, okay? Now, why are we talking about this? Why are we trying to feel the weight of the injustice and the systemic evil that's transpiring in this context? Well, it's really significant. Here's the reason why. It's important for you to understand the historical context in which Christianity was born and originated because I think a lot of times, I don't know why we assume this, but a lot of times people assume that Christianity is always most flourished in contexts that have been easy. That Christianity is most flourished basically in the context of Mayberry. Do you guys know what Mayberry is? Anybody watch the Andy Griffith show? Watch it like, you know, you get sick in school and you stay at home and watch Andy Griffith because there's nothing else on TV. Mayberry was sort of this like, that was kind of the area where it's like Christianity would flourish. Everybody's happy and everybody's nice. And the only problems are like small little crimes or little misunderstandings. And everybody lives happily ever after in the end. And I want you to see that's not the origin story of Christianity. Christianity was born in the belly of the beast. Christianity was born where history in a lot of ways was at its worst. I mean, it's a declaration. Here's the really great news. Is historically, here's what we know. Is that Christianity was born when things were at their worst and most unjust. And the really good, reason, the really good news about that is the fact that God is not passive to the injustice we all experience. No, actually, historically, God was on the cross at the height of historical injustice. And the moment where the world was at its worst, I'm not trying to diminish some of the hardships that a lot of you have felt in this room because a lot of you have been on the other side of really terrible, terrible things, and we weep for you. But the most wicked moment in the story of history was when the one person who was without sin went through a, a legitimate judicial process, was convicted of a crime, and told that like, the just punishment for the crime that you, accuse, you were accused of committing is death, and death on a cross, one of the most agonizingly terrible ways to die. Do you see that? In the moment where things were at their worst, God was not far off, but he was instead as near as you could ever imagine. He was on the cross, taking on that wickedness upon himself. Now, more than that just being kind of an interesting thing about who God is, the really good news about all of this, I don't know. Again, a lot of this is, I think what I'm about to say, is more of like what I feel and what I, what I see. So I just be kind of transparent with that. I mean, maybe you'll have a statistic that speaks against this. But here's just kind of my observation of talking to people, is that most people right now, if we bring it into present day and think about the future, are scared. That's just sort of what I sense. I talk to people, it just seems like people are scared. It seemed like maybe 15 or 20 years ago, people were kind of like on the, the extreme of misunderstanding history that sort of like everything is getting better all the time and things are way better than they were ever before. And then all of a sudden you have something like September 11th and you learn about the genocides that are transpiring not years ago, but right now. You learn about how more people are killed through wars and through the technological advancements we have than ever before. And you sort of wake up to the reality that things are still broken. We just sort of express that brokenness differently. And just because we have the technological advancements of iPhones doesn't mean that everything is better. But man, it's like we then, it's easy for us to swing to the opposite extreme and kind of believe that like things are worse than they ever have been before and they're so bad, it's like, I'm not sure how this thing is gonna turn out. And there's a lot of factors in this, right? There's the technological advancements where all of a sudden you can see the brokenness of the world better than ever before. You can not only hear about ISIS beheading a group of people on a beach, you could actually watch it if you wanted to. There's terrorist bombings at an airport in Belgium and like 15 minutes after it, you can see the firsthand cell phone footage of everything that went down. I don't know, I think a lot of it's the election. I mean, I'm not about to get political. I'm still trying to figure out what I think about the election right now. It's like so 
weird in the context of American history. I don't know. But it's just like people are scared, right? Like people look at a guy. I'm not trying to take a political shot, but it's just a reality, right? Like people look at a guy who like was pretty unstable on a heavily edited reality TV show. And it's like that guy could run the country and have his like finger on the button to launch nukes. And people are like freaking out. Yeah, especially for any of you who have kids or are married or thinking about kids in the future. I mean, this has happened to me where, I mean, I used to kind of be like, well, I'm an adult now, so even if this whole thing blows up, it's not that big of a deal. I had a good run. And, you know, it's like, it's okay. Like, you know, like, historically, I got to long, live a long life. But then you have a kid, and you're like, oh, crap. Like, now the, the number of years that I care about just, like, resets all over again. It's like, well, she's probably going to have kids, too. And, man, even the grandbabies, I'll probably love them even more, right? So it's like, oh, man. Like, it's just easy for me to be, like, so freaked out and for you to be freaked out as well and to sort of look to the future of what's happening in this country or in this world or even in your own personal life and assume that sort of nobody is there, God doesn't exist. If he is there, he's asleep the wheel. What in the world is he doing? And here's what I want you to see from this context. That's why we went into it, is God specializes in moments such as these. And he's always, he's always specialized. Christianity has always flourished in moments where things were the darkest, and things were the worst, and things were the bleakest, and the only explanation for any sort of redemption is that the God of this universe stepped in and moved. Man, and there's some element then of confidence as you look to the future to say, like, man, I'm a little bit freaked out. Man, this is not new. This is not new in the grand sweep of history. No, it's why, like, man, you look at a story like this one, and it's like, this is really bad. It's really bad. Feel the weight of the injustice, but let sort of that feeling be some element of good news to you, okay? Now, secondly, in the midst of that injustice, what we see kind of as the story unfolds is the difficulty of us believing rightly in the midst of injustice as well. The difficulty of us believing in the midst of injustice as well. Now look at this. Look at verse 6. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, here's sort of full disclosure here. I have never been more impressed with Peter than this moment right here. And you read earlier in the book of Acts, and Peter preaches this sermon. It's like every pastor's dream sermon. He preaches this sermon, and thousands of people not only believe, but are like, we're getting baptized today. Right? It's just like, it's your dream come true. But you know what's way more impressive to me than that? It's the fact that the night before Peter's getting executed, he's fast asleep. Right? Like, isn't that crazy? Like, just full disclosure for me, like, full transparency. I'm, like, a kind of an anxious person, and I have a lot of trouble sleeping. It's been like that my entire life, like... Like, something doesn't even have to be wrong. It's just sort of the possibility that something could go wrong. That it's like, like, I don't sleep that night, right? And then, like, here's Peter. Like, what unbelievable confidence in the character and nature of God who, like, this dude is literally chained to his executioners, and he's just, like, sawing logs. It's, like, no big deal. He's just out cold. Like, isn't that amazing? Like, what if we had confidence in God like that? Like, what if? And here's the really amazing thing about this. is you read this story, in verse 9, it reveals that, he, like, he didn't think that he was even going to get free. Like, he thought he was still going to die. Verse 9 says, he did not know that what was being done by the angel when he's being freed was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So, I mean, it's not like he's like, man, he's sort of naming and claiming that God's going to get me out of this situation. I mean, he's prepared to die. But he's like, go ahead, do your worst. Because of the resurrection, my God not only lived for me, but he died for me. Not only died for me, but he resurrected for me. And by grace through faith, his victory is my victory as well. So go ahead and do your worst because you can kill me, but my God conquered death. So go ahead and do it. But I'll be sleeping the night before. It's like, what confidence, man. 
That's not even the point of the point. But it's just like, I just see Peter asleep, and I'm like, I'm so convicted right now. I've never been so convicted by a dude taking a nap. All right. Now, I love verse 12. Look at verse 12 and what happens next. So this angel of the Lord comes in, frees Peter, gets him out of the prison. Peter flees, right? He's on the road. He's trying not to get caught. And he gets to the house where this little church that he's been shepherding is praying for him. Okay, now I want you to sort of visualize the way this would have gone down, okay? Um, I love this story. Like, I think it's just absolutely amazing. And, and so, um, I don't know. Like, imagine you guys are, even in this room, are bigger than probably the church that's praying for Peter here, okay? So, you guys are in this room, and you're like, you're praying for Peter, right? So, like, God, please deliver Peter, please deliver Peter, please deliver Peter, please deliver Peter. And then all of a sudden, you know, let's imagine this is the door right here. They hear a knock on the door, right? Now, look at this, verse 12. So, you realize this. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where the people were gathered together and they were praying. You got the context? So you guys are here, you're praying. Please deliver Peter, please deliver Peter. All of a sudden, a knock on the door. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, verse 13, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So you can imagine this. This dude has just been freed from his execution. He's at the door. He's knocking on the door. And somebody comes to the door, but they don't open the door because it's so pumped that it's Peter who they've been praying for that she goes back to tell the people who've been praying for him, hey, Peter's okay. Like, Peter's okay. He may not be okay in five minutes, but he's okay, right? He's Okay. Now look at the way they respond, right? Like, just imagine, in this situation, you're there, you're praying, God has answered the very thing that you have been asking for over and over and over again. Like, miraculous, party, celebration, right? Look at this in verse 15, though. They said to her, you are out of your mind. Right? So, like, Rhoda comes, answers the door, thinks it's Peter, goes back in. It's like, it's Peter. They're praying for Peter to be delivered, and they're like, you're crazy. There's no way that happened whatsoever. Look at this. She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel, which is not even good theology. Like, they're just saying there's no reason. There's no, there's no way that God did the very thing that we're asking him to do right now here in this moment. But Peter continued knocking, of course, because he does not want to, as somebody on the, on the run, to get, you know, executed at the front door. That would be a major bummer. Um, man, he continued knocking, And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, here's what I love about this scene. I love the honesty of this scene, right? Like a lot of times there's sort of this belief, and maybe some of you believe this as well, is the Bible is sort of this invented book that's kind of, a bunch of fictional stories that made to like trick you into believing in Christianity. The problem is when you actually read the Bible, you have a ton of stories like this that are so messy. Like they're so unbelievably messy. The only reason they would be in there is because they actually happen in real history and God is trying to make a point to us in the midst of the messiness. And here's the point that's being made in this moment. Do you see this? It's like these people really struggle to believe And they like really struggled in the midst of injustice, in the face of injustice, in the face of systemic evil. They really, really struggled to believe God. Now, there's kind of a good side of this as well. We'll get there in a second. But I just want to park there for a second for you to think to yourself, like this is hard, okay? In some ways, it's a little bit of an affirmation of the struggle that we all have in the face of injustice or evil that we've all faced. Like, man, you're just a liar if you're somebody who's like, oh yeah, I never struggle to believe or wonder what God's up to when I'm in the face of like wickedness like this. 
Nope, not a concern in the world. Totally on board. If we're just honest, it's like really hard to believe that God is there and cares and moving and can do anything about that. And these people wrestle with that. Like, that's your struggle. That was these people's struggle as well, which is really funny because a lot of times the early church is sort of propped up as this group of people that had like no problems ever and had perfect faith always. And it's like, well, just read about them. Like, they struggle in the same way we struggled as well. It's hard to believe. I was thinking about this in my own life. And it's hard to believe this when you care about social issues and sort of social wickedness that exists out there. And you just have any sort of concern about what's going on in the world. And all of you are probably uniquely concerned about particular issues that are going on in culture. Like I think about this in my own family. For us as a family, we're particularly burdened with the issue of adoption. Um, and not so much adoption. I mean, it's more than that. It's like more the reality that there are so many children around the world who will grow up without any sort of parents. And there are such long-term consequences for these children. You know, and so that's why we chose to like prioritize uh, adoption in terms of growing our family. We're so thankful that we did it, but kind of the downside of it was getting sort of into the belly of this beast and seeing firsthand, like, man, this thing is ugly. Like, you look at what foreign governments are doing with these children, and they sort of institutionalize them, not because there's nobody who wants to take them into their home, but instead because these children are very powerful and persuasive political pawns that get moved around in order for political agendas to get addressed. And man, it is so unbelievably disheartening, especially when it's your child who's on the other side of that as well. And I'm just totally honest, like there were so many times along the way that it was like, is this going to work out? Does God really care? Are the parts of the Bible where God talks about caring for the orphan, like I know they're real, but like are they real? You ever have that internal dialogue with yourself? Yeah, it's so hard. And a lot of you feel that way. You're passionate about particular issues and you, you sacrifice for particular issues. And if you're just totally honest, like the reality is that there are plenty of moments as much as you might advocate for this on Facebook and as much as you would never put this on Facebook, you think to yourself, am I ever going to make a difference here and is anything ever going to change? And it's easy to feel this individually as well if you face any sort of injustice or evil. I mean, you know, I was processing this in my own life and I don't know, where I feel this the most, and at first I thought this was kind of unique to like what I do for a living, but I think everybody feels this, is like when people lie about you, um, it's been really weird in this journey of what I do. It's like a little bit public, kind of what I do is a little bit, I mean, I guess I'm like public speaking now. So it's like a kind of public what I do. And it's been weird um, having people, you, know, you just sort of hear through the grapevine, like somebody lied about you or said you said something you didn't say or said the situation went down this way and that's not the way that it went down. And again, like you don't have to be a pastor to experience that. There's plenty of times at your work where people like, edited emails in a jacked up weird way for to like change the wording for something you said. I didn't say, I didn't say that. Or somebody reports something differently to your boss or it could just be with your spouse, right? Like a lot of times you're fighting with your spouse and you're like, I didn't say that. They're like, yes, you did say that. It's like, I didn't say that, right? So we've all kind of had this. And man, you feel the weight of the injustice and you feel like, man, I got to give my whole life to like righting these wrongs. I gotta protect myself. I gotta watch over myself. Like, if I don't do that, like everything's gonna fall apart. It's hard to believe. Here's what I love about this scene: is not only does it show how hard it was for the early church to believe in the midst of tremendous wickedness and evil, but here's the really great news: is God moved anyways. Isn't that amazing? 
Right? Like it's easy, like a lot of times we sort of conjure up this sort of religious system that says to ourselves, like, well, the reason that this wickedness is still happening is because I'm not doing enough, because I'm not believing enough. And it's almost like we sort of imagine God is there and we kind of have to like, okay, I have to have 100% faith. I'm not really sure what that is, but I know I don't have it now. I'm not like an ounce of doubt whatsoever. And so I'm not going to even think about bad things that could ever happen. It's like, you just drive yourself mentally crazy. Maybe I'm the only one who does this, but I'm just sort of verbally processing here in front of the rest of you. But it's like, man, you just sort of feel like it's all on you. And you feel like it's all about your performance and you feel like it's up to you for you to heal the brokenness of your world. Or you feel like, man, when you're individually wronged, it's up to you giving your entire life to sort of chasing down every bad thing that's been said about you and writing all those things and putting it back. It's like, man, and in the midst of our imperfections and in the midst of our finiteness and in the midst of the inability for us to know all the ways that we've been wronged or treated poorly, God moves anyways. And that should be confidence to you. That should be great confidence to you. If you're passionate about a social cause that aligns with the heart of God, man, you should be so unbelievably encouraged that God cares more, more about that cause than you do. He's actually working to bring about greater redemption than you ever could, like even if you didn't sleep, right? Here's the, here's the big thing. is Individually where you feel injustice, here's the amazing thing. Isn't it good news that God is fighting for justice in your life even when you're not like able to fight for justice in your life. Like you can be the type of person who's a little bit of a psychopath and like text everybody to clear up every little thing that was said wrong about you ever or you can take a little bit more of a passive approach say, man, I don't have that much control over my life anyways. To be honest, I'm more brokenness than even the lies that people are saying about me and so I'm just gonna sort of like let it go, right? Like I'm just gonna, it's like, it's been so hard for me to do this but personally that's why I was just like, I'm just gonna let it go unless this is like gonna just absolutely ridiculous. I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to believe that there's a God who's fighting for me and is actually bringing something better in my life than even I could create in my life. Man, that's the God who's being portrayed here. How good he is to us, how good he is to this world, how good he is to the things that we're passionate about, how good he is to the people we care about as well. And so be really encouraged that these people struggle in the same way that we struggle as well. Now, third, when we get then, so it's not just like, we'll just suck it up and wait. There's actually a glimpse of justice. I love the way this story ends. It might be a little bit unsettling to some of you, but it's awesome, okay? So I'm not even sorry. Verse 18. Now, when, they, when day came, so this is the next day, right? They're getting ready to kill Peter. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers of what had become of Peter, right? So they woke up thinking they're going to kill Peter, and Peter's not there, which is ultimately really bad for their soldiers because now Herod is going to kill them. You see that in verse 19? And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Bummer. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Herod is just, what a nice guy, right? Um, now, <clears throat> verse 20. This is sort of a break in the story. It's leading to somewhere else just a few days after this. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now, we won't dive into all the political tensions of what's going on here, but basically what's going on was there's some sort of political tension between uh, Herod and these areas called Tyre and Sidon, and as tensions rose, Herod fixed the problem as any good fascist dictator would. He basically cuts off their food supply. And as you can imagine, they're like, hey, you're not that bad. Like we, should, like, we love you. Like, we should throw a party for you. That's basically what's going on here. It's amazing how you can get votes when you control food supplies. So that's basically what's going on here in this moment. <clears throat> so they throw this party for Herod. And look at this in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. 
And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, this is one of those scenes I really want to press into. I want you to try to visualize. You have to imagine a room much bigger than this one, many more people than this as well, and them yelling out the voice of a God and not a man. But it would have been more than just sort of like, I don't know, the way I first read this was thinking to myself, like almost like a single guy in the back was like, the voice of a God, not a man. You know, like, but it's like, it's way, way more powerful than that. In fact, it's interesting, this is where it's like helpful to know a little bit of Greek, because in English, it just sounds like they're saying the voice of a God, not a man, but in the Greek, it would have actually rhymed. It would have been like a chant. In fact, let me just read this so you can hear this. It would have been, ha de demos epiphomoi theu phone kai uk anthropu. Say it again. Imagine people chanting this, ha de demos epiphomoi theu phone kai uk anthropu. Louder and louder and louder and louder. The voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod's like, more and more. Like, I got these robes on. You're like, you're right. You don't even know the half of it. Come on. Come on, more. And look at this. Verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I'm just kind of like, holy crap. You know, like, <laughs> like whoa, <laughs> what? You can do that? Man, yes, you can. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And it's like, do you see that? Like, this story is architected to make a very clear point. Do you see it? Like, it seems ironic. It's more than ironic. It's like everything sad is coming untrue. Here's this guy who thought he could play God kill Peter in the movement, and the true God of the universe judges him, kills him, and the movement flourishes and prospers. So it's happening in this moment. It's like a declaration. It's, like a, it's more than a declaration. It's a, it's a glimpse into the ripple effect of justice that comes from the cross of Christ. And we're going to think about this, Okay. It's easy for you to think about the cross and the resurrection, particularly the resurrection part of it, almost like, um, I don't know, it's like this Vegas show where Jesus is like, you guys ain't seen nothing yet, right? And like, encore, like more and more, oh, I'm going to raise from the dead. Wow, Jesus, more and more, I'm going to walk through walls, more and more, like, wow, this is, it's like, that's not what the resurrection is. I mean, the resurrection is a lot of things, but one of the things that it's most clearly called in the scriptures is it's called first fruits. Paul uses that terminology in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that the resurrection of Jesus is a first fruit. Now, we exist in a city, so we don't exist in a grand culture. Some of you do urban farming and all that sort of stuff as well, but it's almost the image of a farmer walking through a harvest that is about to be ripe. And it's like there's a single strawberry uh, plant that's like just blossomed enough to see it. Right? And like this farmer kind of looks at it and it's like, okay, this is what's going to come around here. That's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is a glimpse, it's a window into the future. Maybe think about it another way. It kind of reminds me of those like technological presentations. I know there was one a couple of weeks ago from Tesla. Um, Apple does this all the time where they're like, hey, here's this new technological project, uh, product, and like in 10 years, everybody's going to be using this. Everybody's going to be driving this, and we're like, no, there's no way that anybody would ever use a phone that has a screen on it whatsoever. We need, we need buttons on our phones. We got to have buttons on our phones. And you know, it's like, like it made me think about like back in 1977, Steve Jobs, not Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, he said, um, he said like his dream for his life 
would be to put a computer in every single home. And here, like, this is what he looked like when he said this. He's in the white sweater there, like, I won't let that dude deliver a pizza to my house, let alone, like, <laughs> dictate the future of the world. You know, he says this, right? And, like, nobody's like, oh, cool, that makes a lot of sense. It's like, everybody's like, no, you're an idiot. There's no way. Like, computers at that time are taking up multiple rooms. They're millions of dollars. How are we going to have a multi-room, million-dollar machine in every single one of our houses. And that's actually one of the things, that's why this picture is so famous, where he's like, no, they're like small, they're little, they look like this, they'll sit on a a table. And people are like, okay, he's like giving little bit of glimpses for people to see like, okay, this is what the future holds. That's what God is doing in the resurrection, that we doing life in a broken and fallen world, we're, we're in this place where it's like, man, it's just easy for us to struggle and to not to believe and to think to ourselves, why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous perish and why is everything so jacked up and does God even care and why do people get sick and why do the people die and why does it always have to be this way and I thought it, I thought it was going to be better than this and why is it so hard and why is my life so hard and why is my job so hard and why is my marriage so hard and why is all this going down? It's like we're basically the people saying, there's no way you could put a computer in somebody's house. And God's like, okay, I get that. I understand the pushback. I understand it's a little bit hard for you to think in these categories. Let me give you a glimpse into what the future holds, and that's what the resurrection is. It's like, here's God's son, the person who experienced the greatest injustice the world has ever known, far worse than any of us will ever experience, and it wasn't the final word. And not in just some sort of metaphorical sense, but very, very literally. He literally got killed by the greatest injustice the world would ever know, and he gets back up again three days later, and he's raised to walk in the newness of life. And what it means then, that being the first fruit, is that is the glimpse of what the future holds for all of us who are in Christ as well. And it means that like we wait, and it's agonizing, and it's hard, and it's painful, and we weep, and we struggle, but we do all those things not without hope, but instead with a concrete anchor of hope called the cross and the resurrection that shows us that the day that we're yearning for is not, again, a fanciful wish dream, but instead is what God is going to remake the world to be. And just in the same way that, like, if you came across a still pond and you toss a rock into it and, like, it splashes and the ripple effects go everywhere... And God does that in the story of history. He comes and he tosses in the gospel rock. And man, those ripples go out. But here's the interesting thing is those ripples don't get smaller, but they actually grow into roaring waves. And you're starting to see an effect of that in Acts 12 where all of a sudden God just gives a glimpse of how he's making things right again. There's still a little bit of injustice in all this, right? Like James still gets killed. But like it's gonna grow and it's gonna grow and it's gonna grow and it's gonna grow and there's a day coming where racial prejudice will be no more. There's a day coming where there will be no more orphan. There's a day coming where there will be nobody who feels alone and isolated. There'll be nobody, uh, no, there's a day coming where judicial and systemic evil does not exist anymore. There's a day coming where even disease and death will be no, any, no more because at the cross of Christ and at the resurrection, Jesus killed death. And what it means then is we wait and we hope and we suffer and we struggle but with an eye on a future day that's coming, a glimpse, a first fruit that's been coming, we've been given an opportunity to see through the cross, and we say, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are, and we thank you. um, 
yeah, I just thank you so much for the story and the rawness of it and the realness of it and that there's these people that are struggling the exact same ways that we believe as well. And uh, I don't know, I just pray that we really would take practical hope in it and um, we would believe that, um, I don't know, gosh, it's hard to know what to pray. Like, here's what I pray. I pray that we would know you were there, you were not silent, you care, you have stepped into and felt the weight of the injustice that we feel, and that does not disprove your existence when we suffer, but instead has us cherish to a deeper degree the fact that you do exist and that you have experienced what we've experienced and you have walked through what we've ex- walked through as well. And to be honest, none of us have gone through anything that, that in any way touches the degree of sadness and brokenness of the cross. And that's not to diminish the degree of sadness and brokenness we've all felt in our lives. And I do pray for men and women who have suffered tremendously, particularly in the face of injustice and systemic evil, that they would know that like, we feel that and we care about that and we want to walk alongside them in that and we weep for them in that. Uh, but more importantly, they would understand that even more than the church here that cares for them, there's a heavenly father who cares for them and that there's a heavenly father who's felt the weight of what they've felt as well. And so we pray that we would respond with just thankfulness and worship and appreciation for what it is that you've done um, and what you revealed to us through this story. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.